0: I'm Charles Foster Kane! Hey Stella!
1: Suck on this. What is going on everybody? This is Wrong Real episode 458. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. It's been a busy couple of days for the podcast, and I've recently recorded four episodes of the show, a few of which are absolute whoppers, like an episode devoted to the entire career of Steven Soderbergh, and yet another where we talk all about the year 1954. These are going to take some time to assemble, so I thought in the short term I would repurpose some audio from last night's live stream with S.A. Bradley and Adam Rakoff. We went absolutely nuts talking about the horror genre, and just like gasoline being thrown on a brush fire, we had a lot of familiar faces from Wrong Reels Rose Gallery in the chat contributing to the conversation so if you want to see the full video as well as all the great book and movie recommendations that were made in the chat i suggest that you hit the link in the show notes below but if you're on the road or you're chilling at work without further delay i present to you screaming for pleasure a conversation with horror guru s.a. bradley
2: I'll get Gary. We'll meet in Blair's Rock. It's Bennings. Bennings was right there, Mac. I swear to God it had a hold of him.
1: What is going on everyone james hancock here we're back for another live stream or live scream as my producing partner adam rakoff has described it as you probably gathered subject to tonight's conversation is horror a subject I never grew tired of and as a special treat for all of you we have horror guru sa bradley author of screaming for pleasure and the host of the podcast hellbent for horror joining us for tonight's discussion format's going to be a little different tonight while i have some questions for mr bradley the conversation is going to be a bit more of a free for all where viewers can dive in anytime they like if they have the great question for my guest Super chat donations will obviously receive priority, but Adam will be with us every step of the way in the chat to help us make sure we get to everything. So with all that out of the way, let's get down to it. Adam, before we release the Kraken of Scott Bradley, introduce yourself <laughs> for the viewers.
0: Yeah, Adam Rackup here. Uh, if you've joined our past two live streams, uh, for first was Dune with Bill Scurry, and then we did uh, The Abyss, and sort of a james cameron overall james cameron early years of james cameron live stream uh was about two weeks ago now exactly yeah yeah so this is our third outing and it's it's exciting to be back and to talk about uh, an entirely different genre with the great scott bradley
1: beautiful all right well scott you're on deck who is sa bradley and what is screaming for pleasure
2: all about Uh, Yes. So I'm S.A. Bradley, and I'm here to remind everybody that they used to love horror movies when they were a kid, and they secretly still do. And I do a podcast called uh, Hellbent for Horror. Uh, Basically, it's a deep dive into everything uh, that I love about horror movies. And I take a look at books and movies and TV and art and music. I try to find the thread of how horror and culture kind of meet. And I use a little bit of autobiographical work. And I just recently put out a book called Uh, screaming for pleasure how horror makes you happy and healthy and yes it does it's a love letter to all things that go bump in the night Uh, and and, uh, it shows how horror not only reinvents itself to reflect each generation's anxieties, but it also can help heal certain things for folks and how uh, both uh, horror and culture feed each other. And so if you ever want to find out what scared people in any decade, take a look at what's in their horror movies. And it usually has the anxiety that's there, whether pro or con, that is the anxiety that everybody's talking about
1: beautiful well, I want give a quick shout out to some folks in the chat that I recognize the great Joe Duffy one of our friends from Twitter I recognize Diego Flores we got Arco Verity very cool Bill Scurry who's been on the uh, the live stream twice in the past Duncan the Small aka Sir Duncan the Tall from Knight uh, of Seven Kingdoms <laughs> Alchemist of Time I don't know if I know Alchemist of Time but thanks so Ooh. much for joining us we got Stevan Daliev. so and we got a, l- a Listeria Lady you'll have to explain to us what the Listeria <laughs> Lady means but everybody welcome to the chat and once again and if you have an awesome question just dive right in uh you do not have to wait your turn we'll do our best to, to get to everybody but since i am the host of this show i'm going to go first do so it. scott you have a great section in your book where you describe how one person's sacrilege can be another person's religious experience and you use this in the context of the release of john carpenter's remake of the thing in 1982 now you were there when that movie came out right. Now it's was Six So I was like seeing E.T. I wasn't being taken to the thing. I caught on a little, a little <laughs> later. But tell us a little bit about what it was like feeling that er- early audience reaction where you saw the audience and your father quite visibly turn against the movie, followed by this several decade shift where the movie gradually became accepted as one of the finest horror films ever made.
2: Yeah. Well, uh, it was June 25th, 1982. And I think a little bit of context on that is is kind of necessary. It's not like my dad and a bunch of guys just went to the movies uh, and they saw something that offended them. This was something that they were bringing from their childhood. So the thing thing (laughs) that John Carpenter ends up doing is uh, he's remaking a movie that was very beloved to my father's generation. It spoke for his generation the way that John Carpenter's thing spoke for my generation. It had a different set of anxieties that were being rectified in a different way. It was Howard Hawks' uh, thing from another world. And when you take a look at that film, uh, it certainly spoke of the 50s Red Scare and everybody working together against something up in the skies. So my dad absolutely loved that film. It was considered the scariest movie for a Long time. It came out in 1951. If you watch it now, it's kind of funny, but I still admire it. I think there's some pretty wild stuff. That's a killer flick, without a doubt. Yeah, the the open flame uh, when they set fire to James Arness or the stunt double is really terrifying. Uh, So it comes. uh, There was a package of what I consider a contract that an audience member has with a director you want to suspend disbelief and you want to become vulnerable. That's when a movie's at its best. When you are going to say, yeah, I know this is only so many frames per second and, and all of that, but I'm going to allow this to become real. And you can see like in Rocky and Jaws and movies like that, of that time that there was a contract and you get a little bit scared or you get a little bit worried that Rocky's going to get beaten up. But in the end, the contract is we're released from that, that anxiety, and I think that people came with a different contract than the one that John Carpenter was rolling to sign. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, my dad and a bunch of other dads went to this movie, and you could see it. There was—I don't know if there was a, a girl or a woman in the place. It was all men bonding over a very macho movie from the fifties, and these fathers were going to. Pass the baton to their sons and they thought that there was a very good possibility that that would happen because John Carpenter, the way that he made movies at that time, he was kind of a bridge between two generations. If you look at his movies, there's also a kind of like a Western innocence to them. Even oh, yeah, like Assault 13
1: and movies yeah. like that or like they feel like Howard Hawks movies in the late 70s.
2: Yeah, so you know, I think everybody was thinking that it was going to be maybe a little bit like Alien. It might get as nasty as Alien, maybe not even that bad, but it's going to be a little bit grittier, uh, a little bit more explosive, more action-packed maybe, but it was going to be pretty faithful. And of course, Carpenter was not thinking about doing that kind of movie. And if you look at his career, he never really did do the same movie twice in that way, especially early on. He was always trying to reinvent what was already there. So we're watching this movie and it starts looking like the old film with the burning, Title coming on and everything and and I could feel you know I'm at a, I guess at that point I was around fourteen or so I was having problems with my dad but I still didn't want to see my dad displeased you know my dad was still the kind of guy that if we went to a movie and it was nudity he'd just go look away <laughs> I go okay okay you know it'd be that kind of thing uh, it's a very tight uh, you know straight guy and um, so watching this movie, I'm invested that me and my dad are bonding. But it starts to change right away. And it's not even something really gory in the beginning. Uh, You have a a little bit of violence where a guy gets shot and he gets shot in the eye and you see a close-up of that eye with a big hole in it and everybody in the audience goes, ugh. So I think any other movie at that point, without the investment that they already came to, that would have been like, maybe they laugh, maybe they go, ugh a little bit, but they're kind of already upset that he's gone to this level. But there's also the thing that we're on uh, a a federal base, you know, if it's a military base or it's a medical science base, whatever it's owned by the government. So if you look at a Howard Hawks movie, everybody's clean cut, it's the air force. They're all working together to work to one thing. These guys are smoking joints, 1982, not a big deal for me and my friends, but for my dad, that's a big change. Guys with long hair, nobody likes each other. They're all aloof. They're not doing the work. They're making fun out of the guy who's the leader. And I can feel people getting really, you know, this is not computing with what they were expecting. And then you add on top of that, Gore, that even though I had seen a bunch of really crazy movies, I had seen Suspiria by that point. I had seen uh, the chest scene. I had seen The Sentinel, uh, where the guy's nose gets cut off and John Cassavetti's just exploding for no reason at the end of uh, The Fury. And, you know, so I had seen Gore, but I had never seen anything quite like that movie. And I think people were already somewhat offended that he was a, hitting on a childhood dream a memory from their childhood. And he, as fair or not, they felt that he was trashing it. And then you have this gore that even though I had seen all that other stuff, was beyond gore. This was something that was transcendent. It was very much the body doing things that the body should never be able we to do. We have
1: gore it. where every single droplet of blood is like its own independent organism yeah. that can completely unleash hell if Given the an opportunity yeah. to do so. <laughs>
2: And it's not all red, you know, people's necks open up and it looks like chewing gum and like seaweed. And so it's kind of like turning your stomach. And there are, uh, these distorted animals and you see an animal, a, a dog's head, uh, burst wide open, like a blooming flower. And, you know, you could hear dads. That's about when people started getting really angry. They were like, no, this is just repulsive. You know, I'm looking at this and I'm kind of in shock and I'm, I'm actually kind of ashamed to look at certain points. Uh, There are things that's like when the guys are smoking pot, I'm kind of like, man, I'm embarrassed. Uh, somebody's smoking pot in front of my dad, even though it's a movie, I still felt it's this, like watching a this. hardcore
1: sex scene when you're like watching a movie with like your grandmother, you're like, eee! we're crossing <laughs> over, but quick enough <laughs> to say, and I don't have about, that one. I just want to give a quick shout out to Jacob Rivera in the, uh, in the chat. I he's uh, He's been on uh, wrong reel a million times. Filmmaker Bill tech is in the chat. He's been on Unreal real million times as well. He's going to be coming on a live stream as well. John Cribs, who runs The Pink Smoke, who is Wonderful. also in a great video recently about horror movie video stores directed by kevin marr ah. and i see john Arminio, aka quasar sniffer who i know you've uh, recorded with a million times so a lot of familiar faces hanging in the chat room
2: very nice i feel much much safer now <laughs> yeah so when did you start to see that the thing
1: was becoming a beloved classic because i remember my uncle who had a video store in the early 80s he would show it to us on laserdisc. he would have these double features of the warriors and the thing and i was enthralled <laughs> But I was totally oblivious to what was popular, what was not. I just knew that my uncle loved it, and then it was fucking terrifying. But then in the 21st century, it just seems like every year, it becomes even bigger and even more of an acknowledged classic, where it seems like now it regularly shows up on a lot of people's top 10 horror
2: films. Yeah, well, I think uh, I think the blinders had to come off. Uh, I think when it first happened, it was kind of an affront to a lot of people, including fans. Starlog magazine, Cinefantastique, they were like big champions of John Carpenter, and they were champions of him before Fangoria even came out. So he was being talked about in, in Starlog and stuff like that. So he was a, a very beloved character, and they turned on him because of that movie, the way that it made them feel. I think he got it right. I think he is exactly had his thumb or his finger on the pulse of what was happening in 1982. What people didn't want to admit, you know, when they say that, you know, people wanted a good cry. I don't remember that. Take a look at any of the news articles from 1980, 81, 82. You're not going to see a lot of crying and wanting hugs. It was a rough house period where we were kind of demanding those good old days. And I think that this was kind of an attack on that kind of thing. And I think that uh, Carpenter was uh, was feeling that. But when I first saw it, it was like a train wreck. Uh, it was like a car accident. I was in shock. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't sure if I liked it or not. In fact, I remember when the Norris sequence happens and the, his head goes down the desk, I started hearing like the calliope music of waking like, just you're about to faint. I was like, geez, I think I'm really starting to feel something here. And so it became for... Us horror fans, we talked about it almost immediately because it was the thing that you saw that other people were like, you saw that? It was out of the theaters before. So we're like, Like in two weeks, yeah, it was yeah, gone. You got, you got to see this. So when the Fangoria magazine came, I think it was like issue 21, uh, they had full color uh, spread of it. And so everybody was looking at this thing going, man, oh man. But I think its, it's, uh, its career was created. Its legend was created that day by us being able to talk about it in playgrounds everywhere. Dad saying how much they hated it in a weird way. That kind of is an attraction. But I think it really comes to life with HBO. Uh, uh, and it's going to be a square. You don't get that wonderful, robust And it's color. a beautiful
1: widescreen format. Yeah, Sadly, I didn't see
2: probably until DVD, like in the early 2000s. I think
1: even the laser disc that I saw was in the pan and scan.
2: Yeah, when I saw it in the theater, uh, and of course I was about 14 or so, it was back in the day when there were only two theaters, you know, one and two. And so it was a huge screen. So everything, when that chest opens up and the ribs turn into teeth, it was like in your face. It was like an IMAX version of that. So it was really moist and disgusting. Uh, Snot all over the place. or something that looked like snot everywhere. And it really did kind of knock you for a loop. But I think uh, it worked in a way That whole movie's about isolation. They're in boxes. You're watching it at home box office in a TV. It was perfect for that medium at that point, even though it was truncated, even though it was not the the way that the uh, director intended it to. I believe that it became more accessible for people. And just the repetition. What's on? Oh, The Thing's on again. Well, let's watch that. That's freaking crazy. So every kid watched uh, The Thing on HBO. And I think little by little as time went by, because The Thing... It was kind of like this line in the sand. There's pre-thing and there's post-thing on what people started to do with gore and what they started to and do. practical with, effects. Yeah, it's yeah a, I mean, it's, it's a size mix in
1: terms of uh, uh, practical effects. Quick shout out to Fred Schaefer in the channel who actually writes, he writes horror as well. So he's a yes. uh, fellow horror junkie. But uh, Adam, since I mentioned John Arminio, I know you m- or emailed me earlier saying John Armenio had a question. Um, do you have that question I, on I,
0: I sure do, yeah. Uh, he, he wants to know if you were, Scott, if you were curating, uh, like an introductory film course in horror, um, you know, picking, he, as he said, picking someone's first kiss in quotes, what movies would you include?
2: Wow. Well, that's a great question and a hard one. I mean, uh, are we talking like film 101 or are we going a little bit deeper? I think, uh, you know. It, it, it's a tough question because you want to try and find a balance right i mean um, bringing you know the original browning's dracula to kids who you know are uh, only turning 19 at the time that's going to be a snore fest i mean it's 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 a it's it's a great film in many ways but it's also very slow in pace and i don't necessarily know if it tells me, what I think is immediate about horror at this point, I think I would definitely put *Night of the Living Dead* because *Night of the Living Dead*. You start out laughing with that movie; it's okay, it's it's low budget, it's corny, it's black and white, it's grainy. And then as soon as the uh, ghoul in the background comes over and grabs Johnny, it jumps into a whole different type of movie for a little bit. They're and yes, get you Bob. Yeah. <laughs> what I noticed is that I've seen it a couple times on uh, big screens at you know, festivals and Halloween shows and stuff. And it always starts the same way. People are shifting in their seats. They're kind of laughing. They're looking at the corniness. They're making fun out of Judith O'Day's hair and all of that stuff. The lightning is kind of corny. And then when they get into the the farmhouse, there's a little bit of time where it feels like a play. And then all of a sudden it starts to feel very real. And you can sense it in the audience. And I think that there's something about that which makes me say, this is what horror is supposed to do. We're looking at dread. And if I was to look at anything that I would try to speak to in a a class would be to say that there are many different styles of horror. But I think that the thing that endures the most is the thrill of the chase, the dread. The thing before the door is opened and the monster's on the other side. And so I would check on movies like that. I'd love to put Jaws in there because I think Jaws, if I was to go down perfect horror films, I think Jaws is a perfect horror film. I think Alien is damn near perfect, if not perfect. I think John Carpenter's A Thing is a perfect horror film. And when I say perfect, obviously, I'm not saying that everything in there is technically strong. I'm talking about how you just get the emotion of horror and you get a feeling of a story that you can Immediately uh, dismiss the improbable, and allow yourself to go to that 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 next level on it. Do you think nineteen-year-olds
1: uh, ever tire of old timers like ourselves that? Oh yeah, only talking about horror movies from like the late '60s to the early to '80s. Oh, yeah. Of they, course, and that's, that's why I'm saying golden age. Yeah.
2: Uh, that's why I'm saying it would be very hard to do. I, that would be like the introductory, right? But then we have yeah. to go. I mean, you have to end up uh, at extreme horror. You have to go down those paths. I think like, we'll I would start with up. like
1: French extremity, like martyrs, and be like, all right, you think you're tough? You're 19. <laughs> well, you think you're well, so I'm going to take you to the edge of the abyss. And some of y'all aren't coming back. Yeah, well, that's,
2: <laughs> that's one of the things that I was going to say. I was going to put Martyrs on there. I put things that I consider uh, modern classics. I, I, I uh, Trouble Every Day. I'd love to see love I'd like Trouble to have a, that and Teeth. I, I'd like to see uh, them take on uh, some of those films. And then go to where you have a modernization of some old ideas. I like, uh, like um, David Bruckner uh, did The Ritual. That's about as old-fashioned as you can get in a story. Guys go out in the woods. There's something in the woods. But the way that it's done is very engaging and really cool and full of dread. And I feels enjoyed it. Very yeah. Fresh. Yeah, of the Netflix flick, right? Yes, yes. And so uh, I think you have to always go back to the ghost story. But I think you definitely have to talk about some of the films uh, that I've tried to find. I, I might actually, just to completely freak them out, do something like Last House on Dead End Street something and tell the story of here's the power of cinema when you can't find the movie and you only hear about the movie. Because the thing about last house on dead end street is it was a lost film for the longest time, except for triple dubbed uh, versions of it, that the sound was in sync. Little did we know it was never in sync because he didn't have a sound camera when he was making the movie. But everybody thought that that was kind of like a lost, like, snuff film type thing from that time thought it was Italian or Mexican because the voices were dubbed. Uh, and it was so muddy that you couldn't tell what was going on. It's an insane film that makes very little sense for like the first half hour or so, and I'm not sure it ever really makes sense, but the last, uh, 25 minutes I've shown that movie to people who are like hardcore uh, junkies of horror and they look at me at the end they go what the fuck was that nice all right you told me yeah it's because it's sadistic what, what i think is makes that movie so much more disturbing it doesn't look real or anything like that but it feels evil there's like a darkness to it and so i won't tell you anything about it but uh well i i no, I, I won't do that But
1: <laughs> you told me just enough well, yeah. what I like also about your book is how you have a great chapter in there about horror fiction, and you give a lot of shout outs to a lot of great books, in particular one of my favorites, Pet Cemetery, which obviously was just made into a movie for the second time. And famously, Stephen King did not want to publish it due mm-hmm. to how it really wallows in that darkness you're describing. Right. And it's a feeling that was shared by fellow author Peter Straub, as well as Stephen King's wife, but in that the book is now beloved by readers and has been adapted twice, clearly The right decision was made to share the story with the world. So my question is, to what extent do you think storytellers should feel an obligation to push past the moving goalposts of what's considered too dark or unethical for its time? Because it seems like filmmakers and novelists do push past these past these lines occasionally not always but occasionally right you end up with an enduring classic on your hands
2: right well i i think your, your your point of saying occasionally is very very important i i always think that there's uh almost like a ask for apologies later ask for forgiveness later when you're dealing with art because there's a reason that you're going where you're going but i'm not necessarily sure it's about the darkness i think personal is what matters because if you look at the the story of like Pet Cemetery. I love Pet Cemetery. When I read it when it first came out, it took me a day to get past the funeral because the funeral was just mind numbingly painful. But that was a personal book. You know, uh, it's really the, the monkey's paw, right? I mean, it's one of the oldest stories ever. So it's not like the story is so dark, but it does kill a child. But what that I last quarter, I think that last quarter is the darkest stuff that oh, yeah. King's ever written. Oh, definitely. Because I think it's very personal. Uh, I think that he hit on something about himself and people in general that I think was a gold mine, which is the heart of a man is stonier. You know, really, if you look at that movie and uh, you know, I don't know if anybody's seen the new film I have my own opinions about how they kind of emasculated the darkness uh, in that film by making you side with uh, the the husband who in the book he's the reason everything falls apart He is basically Walter White and in Breaking Bad except he's a doctor You know, he is only as good as his options allow him to be he resents his mother-in-law his father-in-law uh, He resents his wife He resents his daughter the only person in the world that he cares about is Gage, which is basically him again. And all he wants to do is run away. He smiles at everybody. He does all the right things, but in his heart, he's a pestilence and he ends up killing his family. You know, his will is what does this. And so that is the darkness of that story. We are watching somebody go into slow motion hell and the devil says, no, you're a dick. You're going to be the last one we kill. Everybody else goes first. And so that is what King hit on that makes that book so dark. The Wendigo in the corner and, you know, the child coming back to life, absolutely terrifying stuff, but it is built on the thing of a man having to live with his, his, uh, self absorption, having a body count. And sitting there and seeing a dead child in a coffin. And there's a fight at the at the funeral. And all of this stuff. I mean, this is dark, dark, painful stuff. And I always think that King is at his best when he is going down that dark and painful path. When he is looking at the, the human side of things. The, the special uh, supernatural stuff is also obviously something to really love. But I think I get more engrossed when he limits himself. When he limits himself to a room when he limps himself to a farm, he limps himself to a pinto. All of those stories are the ones where it, the, the mind yeah, well, it's Cujo
1: crazy. or Misery or whatever, where you, yeah. you really get to go down the inside the, the human mind. Yeah. So, so I think
2: the person. personal is what makes those things. Like I think that martyrs versus inside. So inside, another great French extremism it's film. ruthless. ruthless. Uh, yeah, it, it is absolutely ruthless. But my favorite is martyrs over that because martyrs feels personal. There's something that the director is trying to get off his chest in there. And I think it's all brought down to one line, which is women make the better martyrs. <laughs> they make the best martyrs. They suck so the
1: if best. I'm interpreting what you're saying correctly, it sounds like as if it's not like they should feel an obligation to pursue the darkness, but they should feel the obligation to make their horror as personal and effective as possible whether it's dark or not like the darkness will be a natural byproduct just by being honest with their stories
2: yeah i like uh, i look at uh, fulci's cannibal films versus cannibal holocaust so this is a we're we're high class here right now, but uh, we're looking at *Cannibal Holocaust*. Now that's a movie that I watched once, and because of certain scenes, I just I'm a little queasy about going back to it. But I will say that that's a brilliant film because I feel that there's something very personal that Lindsay's saying about what's happening to uh, culture. You know, this whole idea of when you go and you photograph people, have you altered the story just by photographing them? He's in on a little personal thing there. But, of course, he's also going chaos, crazy. Now, uh, uh, the other cannibal films ape that. They ape that intensity and the gore and extra monkeys getting killed by pythons and stuff like that. All the stuff that's in that movie, none of them as far as I'm concerned, have the impact of that film. They may as well have stopped after Cannibal Holocaust. Nothing more really needed to be said. And so- yeah, I There's a short, very short list of cannibal movies, period, but there's right. only one heavyweight champion. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I mean, uh, that's that's Andre the Giant right there. And, and, and the thing is, uh, I think it works. Uh, whether I would sit there and tell people, oh, you must see this movie. I'm a completist. I had to see it. But uh, it is powerful. It's impacting. And in a way, it is important because it brought a spot of offense to people who didn't think that they could be offended. Uh, And I think that there's something there uh, that for just that little nugget is is somewhat interesting and important for like the purging of stuff that we tend to look for in horror films. Uh, I think it was uh, Wes Craven who said, you don't get, you don't come to horror to get scared. You come to release fear you're there to spit it out, you know, it's like catharsis. Yeah. Yeah. Catharsis, purgative, whatever. And so I think, uh, that's what I mean by personal there. You could be as ruthless as you want and I've seen some of those movies and they leave me very cold. I've cut uh, well, the-
1: cemetery. Like there's no catharsis. Like you take the darkness yeah. in
2: and you right. close the book.
1: And it just stays in you and kind of eats yeah. you. <laughs> and there's it's, no restoration of the status quo. It's probably got the best final sentence that Stephen King's ever written, which is just so simple and so chilling. And I won't spoil it, but yeah, everybody right. should re- read the book. But Adam, I feel like we're neglecting you. Have yes. we missed anything great in the chat, or do yeah. you have any great questions from Twitter, just to kind of l- to yeah, lure we, you into this uh, this have just
0: some fun uh, side conversations about uh, Stephen King and things. Not really any questions, but we I do have a couple questions that were sent earlier um sort of tying back to what we were talking about before with you were mentioning you know jaws and alien being good entry points for for horror um which sort of brings up the question of what's the definition of horror and one of uh one of our questions was um uh, from welsh at welsh bluesman steve from film 89 he said um regarding the definition of horror uh he tried to convince someone recently that silence of the lambs was horror they right. wouldn't believe him. Uh, and he, go, he goes on to say, if horror is only supernatural, then he argued Scream is just a thriller. So what is your definition? That's what he's, he wants to know, What you would, how you would define horror.
2: Right. Well, uh, I mean, this is a, a, a great reason why I have the definition that I do, because it, it's so subjective. What scares me or what interests me may not scare you. There are certain things that are always going to be universal. So I don't... I First off, I hate labels, as I think anybody who listens to the show knows. I always think that they're velvet ropes. We're going to strangle ourselves with velvet ropes, trying to make everything feel so special. So for me, Har is the dictionary version, which is anything that gives you intense uh, dread, fear, terror, disgust. And so if it does those things, and it's a movie that does that, I I consider it a horror film. And then I ask why? Why are they trying to get me to feel that way? Because there are some movies that uh, they have a scary moment in them, but they're not horror movies. Uh, They use horror tropes for a moment to make you feel a certain way. But if you're looking at a movie where there's a consistent tone that is dread and darkness, uh, then you have to kind of ask yourself why that's happening. So like Silence of the Lambs, great, great way to, to jump into this because Silence of the Lambs, okay, why isn't it a horror movie would be my first question to the right. person. What makes you think that a movie with two active serial killers, heads in jars and all this yeah. stuff isn't a horror movie? Uh, and they may say a police procedural. And that's or when I
0: Hollywood likes to say thriller, you know, that's yeah, thriller, like marketing, right? You know.
2: That's the, I think that's the difference between a thriller and a horror film. Although for me, thrillers are like uh, French, uh, foreign correspondent uh, movies like that from Hitchcock, where, you know, there's a bomb, there's a killer, there's a, there's a intrigue and it's basically a puzzle. It needs to be uh, solved. There's a puzzle. But I almost feel the puzzle is almost immaterial to what the movie's trying to tell you. Is it really that big of a thing what Buffalo Bill does? Is it really a genius plot? No. What we have is a woman who has to go down into the earth to meet this guy in a glass cage where the light is coming straight down on him so his eyebrows cover his cheekbones. And he just gives you this stare. And you hear people moaning in the background, and it's low light. What is the feeling they're trying to give you? What prison in the world is like that? that so we already know that we are in on something that is uh, going to be more expressionistic. They're trying to give us uh, an, an emotion. And that emotion sticks around through the entire film. But when we're dealing with this guy, we are seeing a monster. And there is a monster out there. So we're not being asked to side with Clarice nearly as much as we are gravitating towards this scary guy. What I think is really interesting is ask anybody if it's a thriller, what is the point of Lecter ever getting out. Why, is, why does Lecter escape? What does that bring to the show? You know, why, what does it do? Well, the evil's out there, right? He never really gets caught. But why is he out there when we have a completely uh, natural bad guy that has to get caught? No, now we have this guy out and the tension ratchets up. A secret has gotten out. A monster has gotten out. You can never keep this thing in here. You can't contain whatever he is. And when he is escaping tell me that he's not a monster at that point. And the face of human flesh. Yeah. Of they've got a guy hung up with his intestines hanging out. He's, he's given, you know, whatever that's called in the Viking thing with the, they put the lungs or the, the golden dragon, the red dragon or whatever they call it. So, you know, they've got all of this crazy stuff that's happening and it is always dark and it is always about secrets. And we have to find out what these lambs are and, it's all about the innocent getting eaten. It's not about justice. When is justice really talked about in that? Where what we're hearing about is people who have secrets, who are pretending to be something else, and every time that they turn into something else, somebody dies. You know, we have this evolution happening. What is the thing that is on the poster? It is a death head moth. Death head moth is transformation. It's death, but transformation. So tell me what part of that is a thriller. Why is it so obvious that it's a thriller and it's not a horror movie? Just to
1: piggyback off of this, like, how do you um, address like when a a super old movie that is definitely like Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, one of the oldest horror movies, and you're not going to feel fear or dread. But for fans of horror, they're still getting that dopamine fix and they're still getting the thrill, the excitement of being Surrounded by the atmosphere and the style and the tone that they recognize as horror, even if it's, you know, as a nearly 100-year-old movie, has lost the power to do all the things that you associate with the horror
2: genre. Well, I think uh, it has to do with that expressionism. I think that's why uh, Caligari holds as it does, or it holds its spot in history so much is that it's... uh, German expressionism is like the greatest thing that ever happened to horror films because basically German expressionism is all about taking the internal and externalizing it. So we have, you know, the streets of, I guess it's Berlin, I can't remember at this point, twisted and everything. Now all they had left after the Weimar Republic falls apart is like backdrops and black paint and things. So they're basically making these huge slashes and stuff uh, that are supposed to be the deformity of uh, of what's happening in the culture. You are throwing off balance by just how strange that movie looks. All of the tropes that you'll see in horror are in there. You have the jump cut, you have the, the shock moment, you have the slow rise of the, the, the somnambulist who looks out and says something like, tonight you will die to the guy who asks his fortune. So you're hitting on all these things that are stories that are far older than Caligari. And I think that's one of the things that's great about horror is that it has uh, a connection to the oldest storytelling styles. I think it's the second oldest story ever told. If there was a campfire uh, with all of us, Neanderthals sitting around, the first story is, thank you all for being here. I love you all. You're all family. Yeah, I love you. And the second one is, don't go over there in those woods. Carpenter says
1: there's two kinds of horror stories. You're sitting on the campfire and you can say, all right, the evil is out there. The monster's out there. It's the other. It's something coming to get us. And then the other form of horror is, the evils within the human heart—the evils already inside us—and we're going to yeah. do things to each other. But for him, he kind of separates horror into those two categories. And then I can't remember the exact quote, but H.P. Lovecraft has a great one about how the oldest form of emotion is fear, and the oldest form of fear is fear of the unknown. And yeah. I think the yeah, fear of the unknown is one of the key ingredients as well.
2: Yeah, I think there's uh, horror is an emotion first, and a setting afterwards. You know, you can have uh, horror; it's all about feeling. It is named after an emotion, so it has. Has an immediate impact in storytelling uh, by being able to be malleable with allegory and metaphor and symbolism. It holds all of that very well because you don't have to intellectualize an emotion. You can just feel an emotion. So if the story can get you from point A to point B by hitting on these. Things that are almost primitive inside of us, and primitive sometimes gets a bad rap. You don't want to be all primitive, but I think primitive is also instinct. Primitive is also <laughs> primitive is also this this basic thing, the motor inside of us. So it is immediately hitting on a level of focus that I think uh, a lot of other forms of uh, entertainment may not. Uh, I like to think music's the same thing. Music and horror can change uh, your point of view or your emotional state with one note or one frame
1: yeah like what's because, the omen without the music i mean the omen would be yeah. cool without the music but without <laughs> the music right goes a long way in selling it but what you were just talking about um it ties into actually to my next official question like in your uh, book you describe this scene of unimaginable horror and it's not in a horror movie but it's from the film sometimes a great notion based on the ken kesey novel right. by paul newman and it never occurred to me before until i read that but obviously there are a ton of great horror sequences in films that are not remotely considered part of the horror genre what for you are some of the other great examples and maybe uh, elaborate on one of them in terms of like why it works as well as it does. Wow,
2: okay, boy. Um, I think the funny thing is there's a, a ton but every one that I'm coming up with is like a war film. <laughs> well, let's talk oh, sometimes a great notion.
1: Yeah. I think a lot of people have not seen this. It's from 1971. Very, I mean, it's from the same author who wrote uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, but here we have Paul Newman directing himself and Henry Fonda, but, and a great cast. But just describe this scene, because it's it's a movie about a logging family, and suddenly in the middle of it, you have one of the most
2: terrifying, overwhelming horror scenes that I've ever seen. Sure, sure. And I do have some examples, but we'll, we'll head on this because now you got me thinking about Richard Jakel. So uh, the, the scene has a, uh, a log breaking loose on a hill. I'll give you a quick setting. The, the family that uh, Paul Newman and Henry Fond and Richard Jakel are in, they're iconoclasts. They're surrounded by other logging families. They piss every logging family off. So they have to go log alone on another side of the mountain. So if a disaster happens, there's no one really to help. And that's what ends up happening. A log breaks loose. It rolls down the hill. It smashes into another tree. And it ends up crushing Henry Fonda's arm against uh, another tree. So he is critically wounded. He's an elderly man and the family needs to take him away. And Paul Newman sticks around and he's trying to find his his uh, brother, uh, who is somewhat dim-witted. Uh, he's the happy guy all the time. He's a big golden you know, retriever. Yeah, he's a big golden retriever. And Paul Newman is kind of the pragmatist, uh, the hard-as-iron pragmatist. And he goes down to the, the shoreline of this you know, slowly running river, uh, more of a stream at this point. Uh, And he sees that Richard Jekyll is underneath uh, this tree. He's wedged underneath it. And it's floating. uh, It's not floating in the water, but it's sitting in the water. It's a big redwood. And uh, he goes, "Uh, are you okay? And immediately you can see the panic in Paul Newman's eyes. He sees that this is a terrible situation. He starts screaming. What makes this scene really frightening is that there's no music. There's nothing that tells you that this is horror. There's a sound of water. There are birds. And you see Richard Jekyll sitting there going, you know, just let it, let the water rise and I, it'll float up off of me and we'll be fine. I can't move because I'm wedged. There's rocks in my butt. And it goes, this is really embarrassing. But Paul Newman, sees it differently so he tries to get a chainsaw and as the water slowly starting to rise he starts chainsawing this thing so now all you have is the sound of the indifference of birds the wind the water and this chainsaw which cuts out because he gets it too close to the water and it's stuck so finally the log does start to rise but it doesn't do like in the cartoons it just doesn't bob straight up it starts to roll and it rolls towards Richard Jekyll, which means it is slowly pushing him under the water. So no longer is it just that the water is rising in this stream, but he is being pulled down. You make and, palm sweat just describing it. And he is like starting to panic. And he's like, you're not going to let me drown here, are you? And he's laughing and he's babbling. And Paul Newman's trying to keep him calm. And we get to the point where just his face, his lips are over the water. And they have a few jokes with each other. And and Paul says, listen, I'm going to breathe for you. When you go under and you're going under, I will breathe for you. Just hold your breath. Give me a thumbs up. I'll blow it out. I'll get you more. And he goes, man, dad would go crazy if he knew you were kissing me. He's like, shut up. And this dim-witted guy goes under. And the idea of him kissing his brother kills him, he laughs under the water, and Paul Newman has to watch him drown. We see the very beginning of him drowning, but the rest of it is looking in Paul Newman's face, and then just hearing birds and stream. And so that's one of the most horrifying, gripping, uh, lonely deaths that I can think of.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Well, as promised, I have to do a quick interruption because we actually have a super chat donation from the great Bill Scurry himself, who I should say also check out his podcast. I don't get it. But he asked, can (laughs) you talk about body horror in specific, Scott? When did that become a force unto itself? So we'll get back to the early question, but since, yeah, this is a super chat, it gets priority. Sure.
2: Wow, Wow. body horror. I mean, I, I think where it gets popular uh starts really with uh Cronenberg and Shivers is where i would say it gets popularized i'm sure before that there were movies that uh had i mean the blob i mean if you're talking body horror there may not be anything worse than the blob or day of the triffids even but uh, or the uh quarter mass experiment uh the cater mass experiment where the guy goes to outer space and comes back and gets an alien arm and all this craziness uh but i think where we get that creepiness of body horror where it's not just the body's transforming but it's kind of like a revolution where it's the body in chaos and it's somewhat sexual and i think that's where body horror really gets its meat comes from cronenberg and, you know, when we're talking about Cronenberg, his, his whole thing was that he sees death as uh, a revolutionary act. He sees uh, dying or aging as a revolutionary act. He sees sex as a revolutionary act. This is the body in transformation. And he thinks that all things the only way that things ever change is through violent revolution, which may, may not be popular with everybody. Sex with Cronenberg must be a very interesting experience. Oh yeah. (laughs) Well, if you look at his movies, he's been a, he's been a freak on a leash from the very beginning, but I mean, he basically takes this idea in the first few films, shivers and Rabbit. He's looking at venereal disease, uh, social disease, right? So we're talking about social diseases, changing society. And, uh, one's kind of a vampire the other's kind of a zombie movie with with this stuff that's happening but i think that he always took the body as the story and i think that's what's really interesting about him the brood one of my favorites is where you have anger manifested so it's like the ultimate german expressionism you have people who are angry who create their rage outside of their bodies but it comes from their bodies they have to bear it. It has to go through them. And then it becomes these things that run around killing people. I thought that that was absolutely brilliant. The idea that you could manifest resentment could literally kill you is a a really interesting storyline. And I think uh, he always had the queasiness factor uh, in his movies uh, very uh, smartly. I think even movies like Shivers, which is very low budget. But there's this whole really creepy thing where um, Lynn Lowry is speaking. She says, I had this dream and I'm making love with this man, but he's an ancient man. He's an old man. He's a dying man. And his breath stinks. And he tells me that this is all beauty. Everything is beautiful. Death is beautiful. Murder is beautiful. And we see this guy in another room doing a... autopsy on someone who isn't really dead. Yeah. And it's just opening this beautiful woman. We see this beautiful woman. And first thing that we do is we're like, wow, look at this gorgeous, gorgeous woman. And the next thing we know, this elderly man is sitting there without any music or anything. He's just moving his hands back and forth, vibrating. And all of a sudden, this blood starts rolling down her sides. And it is a queasy feeling. So we feel the body. That's body horror to me. There's body melt and all of that. I think one of the most successful ones is Alien. You can't get away from Alien being body horror. I mean, basically, uh, one great idea by Dan O'Bannon changed... Uh, horror history also ties so deeply into our own fears and anxieties of our bodies
1: turning against ourselves whether oh, it's yes. a tumor or whatever the case might be but going back to Cronenberg that run from shivers through dead ringers which is like a 13 14 year run I mean basically have shivers yeah. rabid the brood scanners videodrome dead zone uh, the fly and dead ringers mm-hmm. and it's just like a string of masterpieces and you can debate which ones you like more than others but it's just an unparalleled achievement in horror. Cause even with like guys like Carpenter, he'll zig and zag in a different genre, but, and obviously Cronenberg did have fast company, his, his car, his race car movie, which is a total statistical anomaly. But I think when it comes to accomplishments in the horror genre, that, that period for Cronenberg, I think it's unparalleled from any other period in history.
2: Yeah. It's, it's, uh, What's amazing about it is that he kind of created a subgenre unto his own, even though there were movies that had body horror to them before. I don't think anybody took it as seriously. I think between him and Clive Barker, the two of those folks did so much for us looking at our bodies as more than just, oh, our looks. Uh, They actually made us feel that this is a finite thing here. And it is prone to betray us at some point it's going to betray us and that's an anxiety that i think is fantastic and taking that instead of it being an external thing like say one of my favorite films is phantasm where death is this guy who runs a mortuary uh so it's an external death is the external in the seventh seal all of those movies but instead your body itself what are you what constitutes you it's kind of like in the tenant where uh, Polanski is sitting there and he says, if I lose a tooth, I say, me and my tooth. If I lose (laughs) my leg, I say, me and my leg, right? How much of me has to go before it's not me anymore that I'm talking about? When is that pile
1: of stuff? Like the Brundlefly in his little collection in his uh, cabinet.
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, Relics, all relics or something like that. He says, I I love that movie. I think uh, it's interesting because it works on a level that was... Allowing the mainstream to really get into some serious graphic horror.
1: Yeah, that because, was my invitation into his world. And I saw it at age nine or ten on VHS and it wrecked me, but it wrecked me in the best possible way where I was traumatized, horrified, sickened, grossed out, and couldn't stop thinking about it and saw it a million times. Yeah. <laughs> it just rocks
2: so I'm, I'm interested to see I would love to see one more from Cronenberg we'll see I mean he's done films since that great run that you've you've said and I, uh, several of them I do like I, I'm probably one of the few people that really liked History of Violence oh, and History really Promises it. oh,
1: yeah it's a great double feature it's definitely some of his strongest work in the 21st century but Adam I feel like we're neglecting you any cool rants or questions or topics <laughs> so far in the chat because I'm seeing all these great podcasters and filmmakers and online yeah. commentators ranting and raving about horror so I'm, I'm assuming we're missing some Something juicy. Uh,
0: well, just a couple questions that I can get, I can get to here. Um, Joe Duffy, who's with us wants to know, is there a horror film? Um, is there a recent horror film you think will be talked about as a classic in 10 to 20 years? Uh, maybe something that's under the radar right now that people aren't recognizing or, or, you know, you know, sort of like the way Blade Runner was sort of-
2: right. Right. Well, I'll tell you, uh, there are a lot... Because the last chapter of your book is devoted to this precise topic. Yeah. 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 Uh, I would say that there's several movies that I absolutely love. And I have to say, I'm a little bit uh, skewed on this because I spend a lot of time talking to horror fans that spend time going to conventions and stuff. So they know these movies. I'm not necessarily sure how many people on a regular basis talk about the Duke. They may have heard of it and said, oh, that's the movie with the kid that screams all the time. I'm not fucking seeing that thing. I think that's a movie that uh, can be found later that I think people are going to get the fairy tale aspect and the horrifying aspect of it. Uh, I would say that when we're talking about ones that fall under the radar, there's a movie right now that I absolutely love called The Witch in the Window. It is so simple. It is such a small tale. It is really low budget, but it is a perfect ghost story for Halloween and I can see that becoming a Halloween staple if people find it it's directed by a guy named Andy mitten and I found it just by by weird chance and it is like I said I I, I almost like speaking about it is like building it up too much because it's a small film, but it is so smartly done because it's all about acting. It's about the connection between the characters and the setup of a very simple idea. There was a woman who died in this house and taking something as old as that and moving with it, I think is, uh, is, is, really amazing. Um, there's movies like, see, it's always hard to say because sometimes some of the ones that I put in the books, uh, they've, had a few years on them now and the director has made something after that that i found regrettable but <laughs> that one movie i thought was really great i think bone tomahawk's one that people should be talking about i oh, love bone because Tomahawk. Yeah. that is the kind of movie that's kind of like a blade runner-ish thing where yeah. it's nobody knows what to call it it's like yeah. it's, uh, it's uh, a yeah 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 It's an insane hybrid, and it is so fun. And the thing is, I've watched the two subsequent movies by the same director, and neither of them have given me that elation. They still have the same kind of thing going, the same eccentricity. Yeah. Yeah. But they don't have the the connection uh yeah. th- the length of them is it the uh, first
1: horror western bone tomahawk
2: no no there's been several of those mm-hmm. uh, not so many good near ones dark, not
1: quite the, that uh, near dark feels that. like a horror western but i'm thinking of like in the, like the 1870s or 80s combining Billy the kid it, versus dracula was oh god <laughs> one back oh. in the day is it the first uh, horror i guess is it the first horror western that it's actually like terrifying because when you watch the scene where they i mean spoiler where they basically tear a guy in half like a chicken yeah. bone uh, you just – you cannot unsee it. That's, it's right. in like a medium shot, and it's the medium shot just makes it seem so real. And you're like, that's in my brain
2: forever. And well, That's what's so great about that movie, Bone Tomahawk. From the very beginning, we're watching the first couple moments of it, and it's so exquisitely shot by not – it goes into liminal space. And that's one of the things that I absolutely love, which is where you cut – right before the action actually happens or right after the action actually happens. So you only have almost like a blur. The audience subliminally has to try and figure out exactly what they saw. So you see Sid Haig and uh, Arquette walking through this area where there's all these crazy symbols and bones and everything. And they're like, uh, and one's going, we got to get out of here. And the other one's like, fuck these people. I'll piss on their stuff. And there's this really foreboding way that it's shot. You know, something terrible is going to happen. And, Sid Haig makes it to the other side of this circle and something's there. And we kind of see it, we kind of don't see it. And then we hear him going, oh, 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 and we kind of see things flying through the air that may or may not be parts of his body. And but we're too busy tracking backwards with Arquette, who's running away. David Arquette's running away. He's in the foreground. And we see in the background parts of Sid Haig flying all over the place. And that's the opening sequence. Where do we go from there? To Richard Jenkins not knowing he's eating soup, he thinks it's tea, <laughs> with, uh, with uh, Kurt Russell, having one of the greatest bromances of the Westerns ever. It is so crazy and cockeyed, and absolutely I fell in love with them immediately. The acting of those two guys set a stage for a movie that allowed for a lot of craziness to come together and work. Matthew Fox playing this crazy guy. I've killed many of these. Angel of Death,
1: basically. Yeah, he's the the most disturbing moment of that whole movie. It's a very soft, very quiet, very like subdued moment as they're leaving the cave and they see the method by which these people are breeding. Mm-hmm. and it's, it's it's not a it's not a jump scare, it's not some horrific g- gore, but the implications of what you see, you fill in this giant narrative in your mind, and I, and I think that's what horror really gets you, when it allows your imagination to play a really active role, and imagine things that are even more disturbing than what's immediately being shown on the surface, and yeah, it's just a, the movie's a, a master class in effective storytelling, I love it. Yeah, I think it's really and good.
0: It's, I- one thing that always strikes me about that film too, is that the characters never seem shocked or scared <laughs> by anything they're witnessing it's like they, they just live in such a brutal time in the west that death was just staring at them at every corner and none of this it kind of never feels like it phases them even when kurt russell is watching that guy get you know shot right. down the middle he's just like He's not yeah. like horrified. He's just like, It's all going to be all right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly.
2: Well, is it really, Sheriff? No, I'm just telling him <laughs> that. He's fine. And then, <laughs> yeah. then he's getting strapped up and he goes, It's yeah. going to be all right, Sheriff. It's going to be all right. <laughs> so it's frigging hilarious. Yeah, but, an interesting pro. Yeah. That's actually uh, a, a good point because when I was asked about. Movies that aren't horror movies that have horrific moments. I would point to Lonesome Dove, the miniseries. There are moments, great book, fun, Dove. very fun show. Absolutely, yeah, fun show. But one of the things that is very big about that is the nightmare of violence that's in that in these guys. Like there are moments where you realize just how dangerous those two fellows are. Woodrow, but, yeah, Woodrow, yeah, Woodrow Call and Gus McCrae. Yeah, and when that happens, uh, it gets spooky. But I think the spookiest, the horrible death in that, is Ricky Schroeder going across the Rio Grande, getting bit by a bunch of rattlesnakes. Spoilers! And, you're not allowed to spoil shit that's 35 years old. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that nobody even who's Ricky Schroeder? What is he talking yeah. about? What's a dove? Yeah, you know, like people are completely lost. But it
1: actually isn't Ricky Schroeder's character. It's a it's a different. It's the Irish character who's like feeling homesick. Because Ricky Schroeder's character oh, actually right. does live? to the very end and uh, he very briefly pops up in the sequel book uh, streets of laredo but yeah because uh, they're they have a couple of uh immigrants who join the um the right, drive right. and the one who's homesick and misses his mother yeah he gets taken out by a bunch of water moccasins and it is yes yeah, the end of the first episode and you're like Wow, this is quite a different show than just watching Robert Duvall, you know, playing cards and like making love yeah. to Diane Lane and just having a fine old time. Suddenly you realize all right, a lot of these guys aren't gonna make it to the end of the story.
2: Yeah. And there's just uh, I think there's something about that very straightforward uh thing that Adam was talking about where death is just kind of like a companion. Death is like the tobacco there's in, my in my the There's my
1: copy of Dove right there oh, above there my you shoulder. Go. Yeah. Nice. <laughs>
2: yeah, it's, it's one kind of was...
0: which, which way are you gonna die? Like they all know that. They're probably going to die out in the West at a young age. They just were waiting for <laughs> to right. find out how.
1: I was like, Gus and Cull have already—they've already lived too too long to die youngs." So. Yeah,
2: yeah, <laughs> like, and old salty bastards. Have Have either of you read Blood Meridian? Oh my goodness! There, that's like the ultimate horror. Yeah, Cormac McCarthy's—he's the real deal. I mean, like *The Road*. I feel like that's one, one in (sighs) the
1: in the the, like recent memory, one of the most harrowing experiences you can have on the page. I never saw the movie because I knew. No matter what's on the screen, it's just not going to compare to The Heart of Darkness. But I see a lot of people in the chat talking about this book, Song of Kali by Dan Simmons. Oh, yes. The All only right. one I've read is Hyperion, which I love, but that was just like yeah. pure, raw sci-fi. What, what's the deal with the Song of that, Kali?
2: That is on my list as one of the books that I, I would say that uh, I think you had asked me at some point, you know, what authors you know uh, did you, are you following? And Dan Simmons has been around for a while, but the two books that I talk about is Song of Kali. And the terror. Yeah. And, it was a killer show in AMC. I I really enjoyed the terror. Yeah. Uh I don't know how much to tell you about Song of Holly. Let's just say it's it's a story of two cultures coming together, one overestimating another, and it ends in probably the most terrifying way that you can think of. Sign me up. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I was blown away by Hyperion. its one of the best science fiction novels
1: I've ever read, and just the scope and the details just onspiring it makes so much other science fiction seem like it's just standing still. So, but but my understanding is that Dan Simmons has got you know dozens of books to his
2: name. Yeah, and like five to ten of them are like required reading. Yeah, some of them are really really good. I I read The Terror when uh, it was the heat of August. And I was like, I got to put on a fucking blanket. He does this description of what it's like to be on a boat like that and the frost line inside of the steel hull. And and these guys are frozen. They're, they're talking and they're, you know, you want to talk about like how you're saying lonesome dove and the idea that you're going to die. These guys are already so frozen that they don't even care. They're going to walk 11 miles. We're dead, but we're still somehow finding this weird energy inside of us. No one's complaining anymore. Nobody's eating anymore. I mean, they're just husks going through all of this. And it's absolutely nightmarish in that way. Now you got me thinking about books. So uh, uh, has anybody read Lauren Bucus? Lauren Bukas did uh, a couple books, but two books that I absolutely love of hers is The Shining Girls and Broken Monsters. And Shining Girls uh, has a, well, I can't really say because if I do, I give away the book. There's a serial killer and the serial killer has the ability to be in a couple places at the same time. And that's a really, really interesting book and where it goes. And it's not just the, Set up that's important. It's the relationships of people and broken monsters has the idea where hype or likes social media could
1: become a demon. I think we're, we've we already reached that point, but sometimes in yeah. a good way and sometimes for bad, but social yeah. media, I've seen it make people mentally ill and I've seen it make people very happy. And I, when I look in the chat and I see all these friends, friends and familiar faces, that's social media doing what it's supposed to. But there is a there is a flip side. There's a, another side of the coin in social media as well.
2: Yeah, this this has like a personification. Uh, 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 the first murder will probably make you want to read the book or not. They find a young, it takes place all in Detroit when Detroit is at the lowest and they find a black child on a park bench for a bus at a bus stop. And his upper torso is him sleeping cherubically. The bottom half of him is a deer and he's fused together. And from then on it gets weird. All right. (laughs) Nice. Oh boy. Very uh, I, cool.
0: I have one question from our friend Sky Wingfield, who is asleep right now across the pond.
1: So oh! He's yeah. uh, editor, editor of Film eighty nine. Yeah, yeah. AKA is it Sky Movies or what's his Twitter handle?
0: Uh, Sky movie. Yeah. At Sky Movies. Yeah. Uh, he's a podcaster and editor of that their film site, Film eighty nine. Yes. As James said, yeah. He he <laughs> he's sorry he can't he couldn't be on. He really loves these live streams, but I promised him I would get this question in. He's read your book. And he said, uh, in your book, you discuss the origins of classical music as coming from the church in the Middle Ages <laughs> and the use of the tritone to depict evil and the devil. If you could pick one horror film score that best hits at a primal nerve to invoke feelings of terror, what would it be?
2: Oh, my God. Well, I have to go with the first thing that came into my mind, which is da 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 Dun, dun. So i mean it's simple, the pulse yeah. yeah so yeah. simple and it's the kind heartbeat. of like yeah yeah if you're talking about like uh uh any kind of music like that um uh, i think it was richie blackmore for deep purple they're like man you're supposed to be this great guitarist but your thing is smoke on the water dump 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 dump, dump, dump. that's so simple And he goes yeah you don't think simple is good bump 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 Bum, 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 So the simple really is the thing that gets you. So I yeah. think that psycho, these things where you just have a repetition of something that really feels foreboding. Psycho is the screen. Jaws is the stock. Yeah. Jaws is the creeping up on you. And so I kind of go towards the dread. The scream, on the other hand, is pretty disturbing, too, when you get to Psycho. Herman, I mean, just about anything Herman did was pretty Yeah, dramatic. The Thing has a really simple one as well, just that nice pulse
1: by uh, yeah. Ennio Morricone. Well, yeah. speaking of music, there's a giant music lover who also afforded me a question. Uh, this is Steven Simpson, a.k.a. steve u 7 who's the co-host of the Pop Culture Gamers Podcast, who recently came on Ron Real to talk about music scores. But he said, I feel maybe horror movies have gone stale. We do get some great movies now, but feel we reached a peak in the 80s, which we may never see again. What do you think? And I have a similar question, like just to add to that. What do you think of the current state of horror right now between big budget, low budget, foreign, domestic, et cetera, in terms of our options? And how does it compare to the great heyday that we know and love so well?
2: Well, I, I think uh, I'm not sure uh, the age of, of the person who He's who in his a
1: heat cuz he saw live and let die in the theater. So I think okay. he's
2: a, I think he's a few he's got a few years
1: on you, I think.
2: Yeah, so it's uh, yeah, we're we're close in age and I think uh, there is that old uh, adage that you know, the movies that you see when you're 12 are the things that stick with you. Cuz I remember when Jaws came out, people were saying, "What the hell is everybody so excited by? This is like Moby Dick." but with blood and i'm like no it's not like moby dick, with blood moby dick has some blood when gregory peck is going nuts on the whale there's a little blood coming out but people didn't get that that switch that needed to happen for the next generation i think a lot of times we we evolve in our movie tastes and everything to the level of our comfort zone and some of this stuff is uh, that we absolutely love that i absolutely love uh was considered a bit low class compared to the people who were the uh the the universal children, you know, people who were the monster babies who spent all their time with the universal films and the hammer films. That they kind of thought that these movies that we were watching in the 80s were kind of weak. Uh, I think you get used to certain things, and I think the 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 piece about horror that's so great is that it continues to evolve and continues to stretch out in different areas i will always have a great soft spot that i feel that once uh, george romero has sets the first zombie on fire horrors change it's like 1977 the year punk broke you've got this thing that happens where wow anything can happen and we have some really powerful stuff that was considered junk when it first came out and is now considered great uh I would say that give some patience to the movies that are out there now. I think we're actually in a very good time. I don't think that we have many masterpieces. We don't have movies like, holy shit, this is a masterpiece. But then again, I'm not necessarily sure what we're going to think of some of these movies in a few years. What I see are challenging horror films. And I love the idea that there's challenging and diverse horror films out there. We're at a time right now that I only wish we had in some ways when I was younger In uh, the 80s, the 80s always had supernatural thrillers or horror films. They had monster movies, but really a large portion of it was taken up by one type of horror film or franchises and so you were kind of stuck with those franchises and the reason for that was the drive-in disappeared but the vhs was still around the videos were still around so you were able to have smaller labels put out these movies or bring movies from guadalajara over and and rename them and we would find them to be amazing you could find things that were extremely cheaply made that could offset what was going on we have kind of the same thing happening if you're going to search you can find it. There are so many different tributaries right now. You have nothing. I think the one big thing is that there's not one major trend. We just came out of the fucking zombie trend, which felt like it was forever. Uh, We have Possession is in there, but at the same time, we have Possession. We also have found footage films. We have Korean films that are kicking everybody's ass. We have movies from, uh, what is Indonesia, May the Devil Take You, and Argentina, Terrified, which is really, really good if you haven't seen it. And even just in America, there's
1: a lot of variety. If you look at like A Quiet Place to like all the remakes of franchises, Mm -hmm. I mean, I just feel like, or you look at like hereditary, like no matter what kind of horror you're into, it's funny how like yeah. I thought hereditary was brilliant, and then I, I mentioned it. it. I mentioned it to my little brother who is 14. He's like, man, I saw that at a birthday party. It was so dumb and so boring. Like, but he also gets scared by other horror movies. So right. every, to there's to something each, for to each their own. But there's a, a yeah. lot of variety right now. Yeah, right. I feel like in terms of the business of horror, at least the opportunities are there. Well, now you just need to find those storytellers. And the fact that the director of hereditary has another horror movie come out this summer. Fills oh, I'm me dying. With glee I'm and dying excitement. to see midsummer
2: because yeah. that's kind of another thing that has come back, which I think is awesome. Uh if the, the, the questioner wants to look back a little bit, go back to the mid 70s when full car was kind of a big deal, where you had blood on Satan's claw and the devil rides out. You had movies where the earth was. The supernatural was really nature, and that's something that I'm kind of jazzed by. And we're seeing more of that. A lot of Irish horror films are doing this. The Hall the Hallow was one that had uh, the the creatures and things coming out of the, the woods but there's this whole idea of the earth slowly kind of bringing back the old monsters uh the 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 things that were fairy tales are actually real and midsummer seems like it's wicker man territory it feels like it could be down this path which I think is a modern folk car it was killer oh yeah. and also on the same topic I just saw a question
1: from Adrian Mendoza what do you think of Mandy I thought Mandy was a masterpiece and probably the best movie going experience I had last year in terms of the audience response to a wild movie. But uh, what,
2: what, what, how did you feel about Mandy? Oh, You would think that I would hate that. You, know? you would think that I would hate that. When I first saw a, uh, uh, a preview for it, I'm like, what the fuck? And then I watched this movie, and at first I thought I was right. I was watching this thing, and it's a little slow in the beginning. Uh, But it's highly stylized. I think what made that movie such an entertaining thing to me is that it never knew when to stop. It (laughs) actually over. It it, it made the habitual line crosser. Yeah, it was like it made Cage look like he was underacting at certain points. The the (laughs) set, and I think it was so uh, uh, Cosmatos. I I always get his name. uh, Oh,
1: uh, George Cosmatos. Cosmatos. Um, Yeah, Yeah. Cosmatos. George's father. Because was it George no, pan- directed Jimson?
2: W- yeah. Jimson? Hang on. We've, we've all
1: got computers. And, and uh, Rambo,
2: I,
0: I, First Blood, Part 2. Yeah.
2: yeah it's driving it's, uh, uh, tri- yeah. me crazy that I can't say his name right. But he did uh, The Black Rainbow before that, which was not great in my estimation. It was just a little muddled for my taste. Pano's. Cosmatos was Pano's. Pano's. directed it, yes. Randy. And I just, he was, it's so... I called it a bad shit horror movie. I actually showcased it on one of my shows because I was like, I can't believe that I love this movie, but I love this movie because it is so true to itself. It is so insane and it knows it's insane and it doesn't care. When he pulls out one chainsaw and then the next chainsaw is the size of a (laughs) a riverboat, I'm just dying and I'm going... This is just like everything that it's saying it is. It's a rock and roll. This is the kind of thing like Streets of Fire tried to be, but for a horror film, you know, where it was just this fantasy world of all sorts of crazy rock and roll ideas all put together. This is like every horror album cover metal from like uh, Cannibal Corpse on, all hitting at the same time in a, in a movie. And yet it still made me feel something, which I think absolutely is really amazing. It's a devastating love story.
1: And also just the most batshit insane fantasy horror action extravaganza like in years. Like Yeah, I was
2: completely there, yeah there's that moment. I mean, that was like he's, uh, you know, Danny Hopper possessed him. It was like Dennis Hopper and Nicolas Cage invading the same body when he was in that bathroom. And I'm laughing because that was obviously improvised because the cameraman doesn't know what to do. And he it goes back the cameraman and forth and scared. Kind of, like the cameraman yeah, moves in and right. then he's like, Wait, I, like, I might get hurt here. I'm going to back yeah, up. You I don't think this is going to work in a close up. We need to do something else. And so I'm like sitting there going, okay, even with that fourth wall moment, it feels so real. And so I I, I know that I'll regret loving this movie at some point. Like this will be found later. And it'll be like, this is like Hasu, that uh, Japanese horror film with the house and the cat and everything. Oh, I love yeah, I love
1: House. Yeah, yeah. Which I, I think want, is awesome it, too. It's a,
2: It's a criterion favorite without a doubt. Yeah. So uh, there are some movies that just you can't explain. It hits on that cortex that just works for you. And that's what I love about horror. And that's what I love about films, but I specifically love it about horror because you get to work out some crazy shit while you're doing that. And I mean, this is this is stuff that doesn't have to make sense. It's like I talked to people and I said, you know, I I'm joking about, you know, I don't have any credentials to talk about psychiatry or anything. I said, but you know, sometimes like music and horror, they, they hit on the thing that ails you that you can't define. I may feel glum for no reason that I can articulate. And I don't need to articulate it with horror. I don't need to articulate it with music. I put on the right piece of music, I feel different. It may be temporary, but I feel different. And for me, horror, sometimes just watching these images and not knowing why I love this so much is okay. And knowing that the director might not know why, that makes it no less ingenious. I think we'd spend way too much time trying to turn art into accounting. Like, well, he didn't think of this all in advance, therefore it's not genius. No, I think we're working at a level that's different. I mean, if we will say that with any other piece of art, if you walk in, you don't like a Klimt, someone will go, yes, but what does it make you feel? It's like, yeah, why can't we say that with art? What does it make you feel? You know, it doesn't have to hit on an intellectual level. It can. But I think that it is just as ingenious when it, you, it opens you up to a case of the giggles, a case of the chills, whatever it might be that the makes you- Cheddar Goblin. Ch- cheddar ch- Goblin ch- might ch- be I mean, the, cheddar the funniest goblin.
1: thing of 2018. I nearly, my head
2: nearly melted.
1: 50% like, more cheese be. than the other brands. I mean, he, <laughs> no, it's when he goes, Cheddar Goblin.
2: It's like he's in shock. And and he's just witnessed the,
1: the most horrific thing a human right. being could ever witness. And this is what he's confronted with upon re-entering the house. So I just uh, yeah. I completely lost. But I think what really enhanced it for me is that the entire audience at the Alamo Draft House was in the mood to get weird. And they were in the right. precise frame of mind. And they primed the pump by showing us all the weirdest clips of every Nicolas Cage movie ever made beforehand in oh, the wow. draft house knows how to program movies right so everybody good. was ready to just go to the the strangest side of cinema <laughs> you could possibly explore so it, it was a, a truly most of my movie going experiences are pretty negative in terms of audience interaction that one was pure gold
2: yeah i mean it, it really kind of proves the point that you can't intentionally create a cult movie i mean i don't know if he was creating what I responded to, I have no idea what that director was literally going for, but you can't market that. That wasn't in a marketing thing somewhere where they're going, you know, Nicholas Cage needs a movie where a guy tells him, you know, that uh, he he'll blow him. So he doesn't crack his skull wide open. It's like, Maybe that was in a boardroom somewhere, but I doubt it. I doubt there were movies, uh, executives going, you know, Cage needs a movie with motorcycle demons and, you know, religious cults and rock and roll music and album covers flying through the air. I I think that was a movie that was just kind of, okay, go ahead, sir. Here's some money and uh, let's see if you can come up with something art house. And he ends up with that. I mean, I can't see uh, that there was much pre-planning outside of the director and the writer and, and the filmmakers and the artists themselves creating that thing. So uh, I, I would have thought for sure that was going to be a bust that was a stinker it
1: right. was for a lot of people i mean i heard a lot of people saying they saw it and they're like what the hell is everybody ta-? so there are plenty of people out there who felt nothing i mean i was listening to an mma commentator talk about it and they were they're not a cinephile but they like hated it in very strong words but i don't want to get too off the rails on mandy so adam is there anything sure. I, i've been so cut, carried away by mandy have i missed anything juicy in the chat i'm seeing a, a lot of conversation flip, yeah uh, um, Bill Ooh, Moose, uh, Moose Matt's in here. Moose earlier yeah, said he yeah, wasn't going to be ah, here. Hi, yeah. Moose. Yeah, the
2: changeling.
0: I think he may already be gone. He had to go. He was at work. He had to go back. Oh,
2: gotcha. But, um, he, just, he, he got, got, got fired. Yeah. Um,
0: but Bill fired. Scurry would like to know if you are familiar with uh, artist Wayne Barlow or other horror-themed illustrators.
2: Ooh. Uh, I'm, I can't say that I know, uh, Wayne Barlow and the the guys that I do know are kind of really strange. Like, uh, Matt Carr putrid who does like Bernie Wrightson corpses, like his whole thing is body horror, but it's more decay and he just loves to get as obscene as possible. So I, I I tend to have a soft spot for a guy who would do something (laughs) like that, but what what does Barlow do? I'm always interested to find out new things.
0: Yeah, I, I'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll wait for him to, to chime back in. Oh,
1: also, I've seen one comment from Andre Sarmiento. He said, I saw Mandy with LSD, and boy, a boy was freaking awesome. The guys, best trip ever. I've seen a few <laughs> movies on LSD, and usually when I'm coming down and kind of getting my control back,
2: but I, that is, he's a brave man. <laughs> see, I, I thought what he was going to say is that, uh, yeah, I watched uh, Mandy on LSD and it played like ordinary people. <laughs> and were, or he went off and joined one of those normal. crazy
1: motorcycle cults because those motorcycle Guys, all yeah. were like, you know, like there are like side effects of drug experiments. Yeah. Anyway, so well,
2: I, when you watch Mandy on LSD, it just becomes my dinner with Andre. It's just <laughs> two guys sitting there eating. It's it's amazing.
0: Mandy has a ninety-one percent on Rotten Tomatoes from two hundred twenty-five critics, which is you know it's a it's a large number of critics weighing. Yeah. in. and a very overwhelmingly positive.
2: Yeah, and um, I swear to you, I would have sworn that I wasn't going to like that movie. Yeah, yeah, I, I I went in there with the feeling of like, are you fucking kidding me? I need another. Nicolas Cage movie in my life like I need a well, clap if
0: you look at how many what what else Cage has been putting out over the last five years or so you would you just wouldn't expect <laughs> that
2: and to the Spider-Verse baby yeah. he was good as uh, well, Spider-Man Noir yeah. that was funny that was yeah. funny yeah
0: but uh, his live action roles, I should say. Yeah, absolutely. So, but that's yeah.
1: an excellent question about horror illustrators. Yeah, was so it like Gustave Doré who did all those great illustrations of like Dante's Inferno way back when? Like those mm-hmm. lithographs. Like, there's definitely a, yeah. a very cool tradition of great horror art, and I feel like fantasy Ooh. obviously loves doing like great fantasy covers for yeah. their novels. But I feel like sometimes like best selling horror fiction doesn't necessarily go the extra mile. I'm trying to think, were there any great artwork oh, you, for like Damnation Game or anything like that? Uh,
2: no, I, what I remember was, and I see them in, in the corner there on your bookcase, the tour paperbacks. Oh yeah, hell yeah. No, pa- I,
1: read, I read a ton of Tor fantasy, yeah. absolutely. Tour, I'm reading
2: the Steven Erickson books right now. Yeah, Tour paperbacks always had fantastic covers. And they had some really great ones for like, I think it was Charles E. Grant. He had the Shadows uh, anthology of books. And each one of those covers was really fantastic fascinating really well done we just lost like three great guys in the last couple of years he had bernie wrightson jack kirby who everybody knows from mad magazine but tales from the crypt the crypt keeper and everything Wow, well, i, I would say jack kirby more than anything with uh you know stan the man lee oh, no, and- jack kirby i'm sorry uh jack davis i've oh, got, you, got I, you i said jack kirby jack davis just died yeah, jack kirby has been dead for a while but uh jack davis died i think last year maybe uh and he was like the guy who got into all that trouble with the uh, seduction of the Innocent, where he did EC Comics. He had the infamous one that Stephen King talks about. And with great the movie posters, like bananas yeah. for Woody
1: Allen and stuff like that. Yeah. Like the, those, those hand drawn illustrative posters were just gorgeous.
2: Yeah, and then Long Goodbye as well, the Robert Altman flick. Yeah. And then uh, I, I'm forgetting his first name, but his name was Gogo. His last name was Gogo. He's a poster creator. He did Famous Monsters of Filmland, all of those wonderful covers, all those wonderful posters from all those years for Forrey Ackerman. And between those three guys, that's pretty much the last two generations uh, modern mainstream look at horror in in illustrations there's a ton of uh, of great guys out there and i'm going to draw a blank on each and every one of them but i'm always excited to hear more about illustrators because i'm I'm actually doing a show right now for hellbent for horror where i'm calling it last kiss which is uh, i have i'm saying goodbye to because we had a lot of people from this era die within the last two three years and so i haven't done eulogy shows i always feel uncomfortable about spending an entire episode because, you know, we're at that age where it'd be every other episode's one. So I decided to do one where it's more like an Irish wake, where instead of, feeling bad and everything like that, we go, here's the last kiss. If he's going to send you off with a kiss, this is the best movie. This is the best poster. This is the best music. And I talk about Wrightson, and I talk about Davis, and I talk about Gogo because they they both all three of those guys died recently. And I'm going back to some that I haven't really talked about because uh, it is, it's that time kind of like when my dad uh, in 1980, and it just had, I think it was yesterday, April 29th, 1980s, when Alfred Hitchcock died. And when he died, my dad was like, "Well, there's the end of an era," and it literally was. I mean, Hitchcock was like the last of the old school guys from his time period, the studio system. And I'm feeling that now. I'm feeling what my dad had, which was almost every other week. Oh, geez, you lose a great musician, yeah, you lose a yeah, great, great musician, great novelist. And, yep. and so I'm hitting on the novelists. I'm hitting on the some of the composers that have died, and just saying, if you had to pick one, you know the big one, but here's another one that you should give a shot to. So. It's the last kiss is what I'm trying to
1: do. Gotcha. Well, I'm seeing another comment from Andres Armiento about Climax, which is a movie I did review on this channel where I talk quite a bit about how it captures drug experiences really well. In particular, never look at your reflection. When you're on hallucinogenics, it's like, just introspective hell and death. So, but if you want to see my thoughts on Climax, that is available. But Adrian Mendoza brings up an interesting question. Suspiria 2018, a movie that was very Ooh. divisive for people because obviously Suspiria from the 70s, the Dar Argento, is a masterpiece. But mm-hmm. I, I, I feel like reactions to the latest ran the gamut. I feel like a lot of people were enthralled. Some people rejected outright. For me, everything at the studio was riveting. I was less interested in the kind of like political context of the time. Right. So for me, it was like an hour of astonishing brilliance that I will never forget. But where do you stand on Susperia 2018? Well, that's that's a great
2: question too. And I kind of fall towards you. I wanted to be the guy that loved it because I knew a bunch of Argento maniacs that I was going to meet when I go to conventions where they hated it before they even saw it, right? And so I wanted to be the guy who comes and goes, I absolutely loved it. But I have to say, Because it needed to be its own thing. It kind of is the movie it needed to be, but that's not necessarily the most enjoyable thing. It's not like it doesn't make sense. It makes far more sense than than the original the first For one all makes the no things, sense. It's just yeah. emotions
1: and style yeah. and color and exactly. music. <laughs> and that's
2: absolutely <laughs> wonderful. But this one has to go in the opposite direction. So instead of vibrant colors, we're going to have this olive drab happening quite a bit. We're going to have uh, very angular things that are, that are inside of that movie. We're going to have East Berlin, West Berlin, that whole separation, which is very interesting. We're not going to have that bouncing crazy music either because we can't go there if we're going to do a remake that's going to be its own thing so now we're going to have tom york playing guitar very very different all of that is somber and that's a different mood it's a different mood for a film so they create a different mood i love the absolute beginning when uh Um, I'm forgetting the actress's name. She walks into her psychiatrist's room and she's turning all the mirrors. Oh, Chloe Grace Moretz. Chloe Grace Moretz. I absolutely love that. I thought they were setting something up that was great. I think there's a great movie in there. I think the movie that is there is a little long, it's got, it's got some fat on the bone, but the meat is well worth chewing. Yeah. I think that I love what it's trying to say. I mean, uh, I don't want to give any kind of spoilers away, but I think people probably know by now that there's uh, a very limited amount of male characters in the movie, right? And And it's not always obvious. And that's a statement. And there's a moment in the film towards the end that says, this is what happens when you don't listen to women. And that's when the witches are walking around. But I will say that the end, um, and I don't mean the the second or third end that's in it, but like the big climactic thing, that was the moment when it was obvious that the director wasn't a horror director because that was supposed to be like this big booming, wow, what an amazing, and I heard some critics going, oh, the orgy of blood and all this stuff. And I, I had to stifle a laugh because the way that it was paced, didn't work for everything that they built up to, and you know that's a, a taste thing. So some people had absolutely no problems with it, but I, I you know, the the re- repetition of a name with people staring directly into the camera, it started making me feel a little Monty Python. It was like a little Mel Brooksy. It was like Herr Bluca <laughs> instead of uh, horses whinnying. You had geysers. So it was very, very, uh, it, it felt very wrong in where it went at that point. And that was a timing thing and it was an expectation thing. But I do think that there was some really interesting stuff in the movie. But like I said, uh, like you mentioned about an hour of that, uh, I felt could have been condensed. There's
1: so a two and a half hour movie and the original is an hour and a half. So yeah, Yeah.
2: Much more emotion. Much more everything in this movie. They yeah, have brilliant performance by Tilda dancing. Swinton. Who I,
1: I mean, yeah. Tilda Swinton. They you, you should, you should find a way to put her in every horror movie. But Adam, uh, any I have actually run out of my own personal questions for our illustrious guest. Do you have anything from Twitter or from the chat that I've overlooked or not seen? Because we're at, we're an hour and twenty-five in, so we're starting to get toward the period where we to start wrapping things up. But I want to make sure. I feel that we like did, I just
2: got started.
1: Oh, Well, we can do part two anytime yeah. you like, but I, don't, well, I want to make sure we haven't overlooked anything really juicy.
0: The, uh, Bill Scurry did reply back um, to say that Barlow, the artist he was referring to, designed an entire narrative about hell. It's, uh, He said it's like a Frazetta, uh, except with fallen angels and devils. That so, sounds awesome. Someone to check out. Yeah. I, I was not aware of Farrell either, but I'm definitely gonna
2: yeah look put in. that on a link because uh, and
0: someone can. else mentioned that he has a great Instagram feed so uh, with his Ooh. work so to check out that's even better. Um, yeah, let's see. Are there any new comments here? That that was from a little while ago, but
1: I what think about got you, from, Adam? What, got what, is, all is all your, the, what is your what uh, is your all time favorite <laughs> horror movie, Mr. Ratkoff? We haven't picked your brain at all.
0: Yeah, oh, I mean, boy. like, listen, I'm probably uh, um, <laughs> I'm with. Uh, with Scott in that the original alien for me is probably one of my first horror film experiences, uh, even though it's you know, it's sci-fi. it's it's definitely a horror movie in a sci-fi setting. so <laughs> it it definitely <laughs> shook me to my core <laughs> at a young age. <laughs> so um it, it will always hold a special place in my heart uh, for that reason. But I think we all have those early experiences that we can't sort of, you know, right. We we can't shake them, and we can't even if if looking back at them, they don't quite hold up as well. Alien certainly does. Actually, I just rewatched it. Um, it came out in four K uh, this week, actually. On um, it's just gorgeous. Like they did a completely new restoration of the negative. Wow. Ridley Scott oversaw the whole process, and uh, it's the, the theatrical cut, not the director's cut. And it's just it's just stunning to look at. Like every frame is. Is just beautiful to look at i mean it always was but even yeah. more so now it's uh if you can if you have the ability to watch anything in 4k it's worth it's worth checking out it I sells to 4k <laughs>
1: yeah and going back, we talked earlier about letting your imagination participate in the horror i don't know if there's yeah. a better example of the just with the first film taking an isolation of inviting your imagination to play an active role in the experience because when you see that cavernous room filled with the eggs and you see the navigator and there are all these mysteries and it's all like in the first third of the movie and and it's you never get any payoff and so it just allowed the movie to take on these larger than life dimensions that i think very few horror movies ever even come close to and i I might stand alone in that regard in terms of you're glimpsing through like the cracked door into a much larger world and it's a world that's terrifying and full of monstrosities
0: yeah. yeah and I, I would say too, that, like a lot of people i I think my best horror film experiences were growing up watching vHS tapes at two in the morning. You know, th- there was something about watching horror movies late at night on vhs uh-huh. that is just i can't I, I wish i could go back and, and recreate those emotions those feelings because it's uh it's just not it's not quite the same anymore
1: is the 21st century equivalent i'll ask you both of you guys like but if someone wants to recapture that experience of browsing the horror section at a video store because like john cribs who's in the chat he's in this video that i talked about earlier that uh kevin mar directed he's browsing and he's just like opening and closing vhs like cases like you don't get uh-huh. that on streaming you don't get that yeah. on netflix just like something with the tangibility the smell and the feel was part of the experience but browsing the covers and just Mm -hmm. being aware of the entire landscape of horror even if you hadn't had an opportunity to see him yet is there a 21st century equivalent of the horror browsing experience? Because just the smell of the carpet and just it was just so <laughs> riveting to right. explore the horror section at the video store. Yeah.
0: We're really showing our age now. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah,
2: it's it's never gone away for me because every convention that I go to, I find. I mean, you can tell the guys that grew up in that time. It's kind of like I, I think I mentioned that at some point, maybe in the book. I'm not sure where I talk about how looking through uh, covers. Uh, of books or of movies was kind of like how you would see audiophiles go to a wall of sound and yeah. go through the A's and they just have their fingers flip through the top. They knew the color and the shape and the style and they knew what the the, the album was. They never had to pick it up. Every so often you knew they were going to buy something if they picked up the album because they knew what the the movie store or the uh, album store stocked. And they knew it was new and they knew it wasn't new. And I knew movies by their color and shading yeah. and, you know, the, the font, I didn't even have to read what was there. And, uh, so I see that
0: fine, you know, just like yeah. on the side,
2: you exactly a
0: movie. Yeah. Visually. Yeah.
2: And it was such a garish uh, coloration, and so that still exists when you go to the conventions because there's always guys that are setting up, maybe not VHS, but they they have Blu-rays and things like that. That's also going the way of the dodo. Uh, I, I will say that it's not as uh, uh, satisfying, but you know, if you go on Netflix or Shutter stuff like that, you can see the 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 uh, covers, but the covers are usually different. Uh, a movie like The Car, I was offended because they updated the the poster of the car. Yeah. I'm like, no, that's not the shitty cover. What's this new thing? That's not what the movie is. And they did the same with Race with the Devil. You know, I'm like, there there is no Mustang with the license plate six six six. Wait till people get this and they watch Warren Oates squinting at Peter Fonda while a bunch of guys are chasing them in a Winnebago. Uh, so you know, you see these uh, that changes is, uh, is is upsetting, but it's only. Uh, only upsetting if you went through it before i'm sure that if you want to find the equivalent to this ask someone about 20 ask someone between 12 and 3.
1: yeah and like how do you browse
2: yeah they will tell you exactly how it's done we're looking at ghosts we're walking around in the mausoleum going oh i wish that this fucking thing was still doing what it did before (laughs) Well, the (laughs)
1: advantage now though is If you, like when I was a kid, I didn't know who Dario Argento was. I didn't know who Luca right. Fulci was. Now the films are so much more readily available. If you want to see like the great heyday of Italian horror, it's there, click of a button. So accessibility is way better than back then. Oh yeah, but but you don't. I guess you don't see quite as many really really awful kind of Z grade movies. Like you see more masterpieces and classics. And I feel like to be a have the true horror experience, you need to watch things like buried alive and the reason i rented it was because the cover said it was banned in like 47 countries and it's got a different name in italy right. it's got you know a guy trying to keep the dead body of his wife kind of going a little longer and he will like, like make love to and like kill and eat like the girls beside yeah. her but right. like we had like a big makeout party in middle school watching i know exactly laughing it is. Exc- yeah it's it's wild and that was part of the horror experience was Discovering these forbidden pleasures
2: <laughs> right. that you were not like,
1: supposed to see. And,
2: and because you, uh, I mean, back in the day, aging myself even more, uh, it was like a $1,000 to have a, a, a video player in your house. So yeah. you rented them. So yeah. you went to like rent a center, and in the back they had VCR. So guys would get their driver's license and five friends, and they'd spend the money to get that VHS player. And then they go and get uh, the VHSs, and there's only like eight of them because they're in a rental place so whatever you got you were going to watch it was an expense so you would yeah. sit there and you go let's get screamers it says you won't believe that a guy gets turned inside out and there's no inside out fucking guy in the movie it's actually island of the fishmen <laughs> with a new title and a new poster but uh you know you watched it And that is part of the way that you got a sense of humor about this stuff as well. I think that's why uh, cult stuff got so big and why MST3K did because we got a sense of humor of being burnt so many times with crappy movies. And I will say that if there's one thing that I wish people could feel that I think really helped make movies magical was the anticipation of having to have the patience to find it. The the hunt was so important. So there were movies that I got out of Danny Peary's cult films books when they first came out and and Michael Weldon's Psychotronic. Uh, These were movies that I hadn't seen, but they lived with me for about a decade till I finally got to see them when I made it to the, the right college town that had the right movies in there. It took me a while to see Liquid Sky and Cafe Flesh. And by the time I finally saw them, I'm like, wow, this is- I fantastic. own Cafe
1: Flesh. It's well worth hunting down. <laughs>
2: those, uh, <laughs> the movies will make steam rise off your bald head. Yeah, it's an interesting one. So, I mean, that, that was the fun though. There were movies that I knew of and I knew them by five stills that were in the book. And when I would see those stills come to life- when I hadn't seen the movie, I only had those five stills for about three or four or five years, and i seen it actually alive and moving past that. That was a real thrill. It was like, wow, what an exciting thing. Seeing the iconic shot from uh, the the Wild Bunch, only seeing it on, on the poster for the longest time, then seeing it actually moving. It was really amazing. And that was when movies, at least in my mind, uh, had an iconic, almost religious experience feel to them. They had a mythos to them. You had to search. Like horror, you know, horror, you know, is always going to be hard. It'll change with whatever generation. The thing is hard doesn't owe you any explanations. It doesn't have to be a certain way to you. It has a purpose. Its purpose is to get a rise out of you. You want it come across a street go into the woods. It doesn't come to you. It doesn't own you. It's not going to give you half of its fucking sandwich. That's not what it's here for. That's a diner, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right.
0: <laughs> yeah, there there are films that I re- I remember just renting over and over again. I mean, that was a, that was another part of it. You didn't once you ret- once you watched it, you that was it. You couldn't, Netflix, you could watch things over and over again as much, you know, you can watch anytime you want. It's so accessible. And that's part of my problem with, with streaming services is that they're it's so accessible and it, things just kind of pop up and then you just kind of discard it out. You watch it and you just kind of discard it unless it's really amazing. You just sort of forget about it. But back then the hunt and then the time it took to, you know, you had to get the tape, take, bring it home, watch it. And then, return it like there was a whole it it stuck with you as a result the the whole process of watching a film uh it took effort and time and money as you were saying and that created as sort of a uh, it it made it larger than maybe better than it really was in a way right
2: holding a film in your hands is an amazing thing I had a copy of Ken Russell's The Devils with the uh, the old Warner Brothers shell. And all it was was this shot of uh, – it had nothing to do with the movie outside yeah. of like two people like looking down in close-up. You have no clue what you're looking at. It just says Ken Russell's The Devils, and I had heard that it was really crazy. You put that thing on, it's like a cold, you know, a hot cup I first of coffee. Saw
1: I first saw it on VHS, pan and scan, you know, severely truncated – it still put the zap on me. But yeah. then years later, I got like the BFI version, which is oh. as complete as you're going to get on DVD. Yeah, And then uh, Lisi Tribble-Russell hosted a screening up in um, uh, Yonkers. And John Cribbs was there as well. And uh, Christopher Funderberg and a lot of wrong... Uh, uh, Marcus Penn was there. And uh, it was just a, a, one of the most out-of-body, extraordinary horror experiences I will ever have in my life.
2: Yeah. Uh, it's kind of uh, the way that that holding a movie in your hands has this almost mythic quality to it. I remember when I I saw snuff. So I'm in a mom and pop place and it just says snuff. and It's the old like shell casing on it. And it has this old cover on it that uh, wasn't like I spit on your grave and all of that. It was kind of like, it looked like tape, like somebody had written snuff on tape. And I knew what snuff was. I had read about it and all this. And there it is in front of me. And it was actually intimidating. It was like, what does it mean if I pick this fucking thing up? What does this say about me <laughs> that I'm going to pick this up? And when I picked it up, it felt heavy. You know, it's like when I got the exorcist out of a library, the book. And it was fucking frightening to hold. And I didn't know what to do with it at night because I couldn't let it out. My parents are deeply religious and that's just asking to be possessed by the devil. And so I'm like, do I put it down under the bed? Well, now I've got these crazy eyes that are on that <laughs> thing staring up at my back. You know, why do I put it in the closet? Well, what if the closet door opens? I'll never sleep again. So it was like, it had all this power even though it was nothing but a book. And snuff until I saw it has absolutely no power once you see it. But... But uh, holding all of the fear that that movie started, all the hysteria that that movie started, it felt disturbing to actually carry it around as opposed to, you know, uh, what you may be able to watch in streaming. At one point, I think Serbian film was uh, available on YouTube or something. So people could just sit and you know hit reset and restart on their computer and no one knows that they actually sat there and watched that thing so uh, there's just something a little bit different about those two experiences without a doubt well i think it's clear
1: that this is an inexhaustible topic so we're going to have to do round 2 at some point and maybe we'll rope in a few of these people from the chat to, uh, to interact with you, to have a little horror round table discussion but i can't thank both of you guys enough and everyone in the chat hanging out clearly so actually, people are enjoying uh freaking out about horror flicks but yeah it's horror stories, they've always been cool and they always will be, from sitting around the fire to yeah. curling up with a book to playing the great latest Resident Evil. So yeah, horror, horror fucking rocks. But Adam, yeah. where can people find you if they want to get you to do some awesome thumbnails? Because the <laughs> thumbnails for all these live streams come from Adam, <laughs> or as live scream, as he dubbed this one. But where can people find you on Twitter if they want to talk about horror or sci-fi or whatever? Sure, I'm, I, I'm
0: at Adam Rackoff and uh, that's my only presence on social media so if you want to interact with me there that's where I'll, that's where I am most of the time. So you can if you follow me I'll be happy to follow you back and uh, I'm happy to continue discussing uh, all of this. I'm obviously a fan of horror, especially sci-fi horror. that's kind of my, my specific niche that I'm really into. Um, so I, I'm always uh, interested if you have a tip on something worth checking out. I really do like obscure things too. <laughs> so, I like discovering sort of uh, unknowns and, you know, anything that's that's hard to find, which is something interesting about, you know, again, about VHS is that it's still the most prolific format. There, there are still thousands of movies that never ported to even DVD, yet alone Blu- Blu-ray. So it, it, VHS um, is the place that you're going to find a lot of these, the only place you're going to find a lot of these, yeah, budget, lower budget, and you know B movies that um some are you know cult classics now, yeah, and some are quite valuable. In fact, as a result,
2: right? Have you seen Coherence? I have not. Okay, I, I, sounds Take like a a look. Take a look said. for Coherence. All I'll tell you is that it, okay. uh, uh, well, what's interesting is once you watch the movie, you'll want to read about the movie. Okay, and how it was made. Okay, that's what I'll say. But it is a, a very low budget movie. It takes place in. Maybe only a few sets. It depends okay. uh, on the story where it goes. But you have a comet and you have a party in, in LA. At nice.
0: Okay. I like <laughs> it. I that's liked it already. Yeah.
2: yeah. I like it. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, <laughs> There's
0: a, a really uh, fun, you know, is it from the 80s? What year was it made?
2: No, this is oh. new. This okay. came out a like few that. years ago. It stars uh, the only known actor to... Fans, I guess, would be uh, Brandon, um, I'm forget he was on Buffy, um, um, the uh, the nerdy one. I can't remember his name all of a sudden. But anyway, okay. he, he stars in it. And okay. uh, everybody else, it's an ensemble. And I think they're uh, like friends. They're actor friends who got okay. together to make this crazy movie. So well, that's it's,
0: what's it's, great about horror, too, is that it's one of the only genres, I think, where it can be done on a super low budget and still work. You yeah. know, Most other genres. You, you, you see it. You you can right away tell this is cheap. This is low budget. Right. Horror, horror low budget. work. Yeah, yeah, it really does.
2: and porn. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How about Time Crimes? Have you seen Time Crimes? No. Another, okay. another one. Take night. a look for Time yeah. Crimes. That's okay. a foreign film. Okay. Well, there's a link to Scott's book in
1: the show notes below. But just, Scott, just in case people don't want to read, where can people find your podcast? Where can people buy your book? Where can people just experience the essay, Bradley, just all around?
2: crazy horror lifestyle that you lead <laughs> well hellbent for horror is a podcast that, as i mentioned before it's about everything that's related to horror you can find that anywhere that podcasts are including stitcher and spotify we're on those areas as well uh it is free like any of them uh, i have about three and a half years worth of uh, uh of shows on there uh constantly bringing new ones you can uh follow along with what i'm doing on that on hellbentforhorror.com that webpage is also a book uh spot on there, a book tab. You can get Screaming for Pleasure, How Horror Makes You Happy and Healthy, through there. You can also get it through Amazon. But you're also, uh, I put the I uh, the Ibsen numbers up there, ISBN numbers, because a lot of people don't necessarily want to go through Amazon. If you want to help your independent booksellers, I'm a big fan of independent booksellers, you can take that number and they will get it for you. They'll be more than happy to get a new book into their place that will actually sell for them. Uh, you can get it on Barnes & Noble, any place that you uh, uh, really want to get a book uh, online you certainly can find it there in print also on kindle there's a kindle version of it as well uh you can find me on social media at Hard. Uh, on and that's at Hellbenthar uh, on Twitter and on uh, Facebook it is Hellbent for Har so uh, and I'm on Instagram too as Hellbent for Har and I occasionally go on there and put pictures of cheese and stuff like that <laughs> <laughs> the, the cheddar goblin well, yeah thanks for goblin.
1: everybody in the the chat thanks for uh Pro for the compliment but yeah just uh, when I see all the support and I see all the interactions and so on and so forth it just uh makes my heart sore puts a huge smile on my face but now it's time to watch some horror and erase that. smile and you know fill my soul (laughs) with revulsion and terror etc so thanks for everyone to tuning for tuning in we'll definitely be planning more live streams like this in the future and you can find me on twitter at colrex and please remember to like and subscribe and all that good stuff for the video but thanks so much for watching we greatly appreciate it but as always most importantly onwards and upwards
2: ain't like it used to be but uh it'll do you know how to whistle don't you steve you just put your lips together and
0: Low.